Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9th through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. I love stories, don't you? Stories that share experiences and teach us what other people have gone through. And sometimes we learn that someone else's journey is also our own. And this evening, we have Richard, who is our head elder here at the church. He is heavily involved in many aspects and ministries here at the church. And for those of you who know his story, that is quite miraculous that um, he is so involved in church. And unfortunately, we don't have enough time to dive deep into his story, but hopefully this evening we will be able to capture a little bit of it. Now, Richard, I know that you were raised in a Christian home, but during your teenage years, you had some significant events in your life that really led to disappointment and actually made you want nothing to do with the church. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, good evening. So, um, growing up as a little boy, I think I was about four years old and I received a Bible for Christmas and I started reading that Bible. And I was gonna be a, a pastor and I didn't wanna be a pastor because I wanted to do things in the church. I wanted to be a pastor because I wanted to preach. And uh, so it was just something about when there was a good preacher preaching, it, it's, as a little kid, it stimulated me, and that's what I wanted to do. So um, that's how my mind was set, and so much so that uh, at the age of about six, my sister and I would be playing outside. We lived on a ranch, and uh, have you, I don't know if you've ever tried to baptize a cat, but uh, <laughs> that's how I started practicing. <laughs> And so life went on, and you know, you grow up, and things change. And um, I got to my teenage years, and I started noticing that everything seemed very rigid and, and legalistic. And, and if you grew up in the 80s and late 70s, 80s, and 90s, I think you know most people will understand when I say it. Just it was very legalistic, and it was. Um, I did not grow up with an experience of learning who Jesus was in a relational way. And, you know, to me it became um, very confusing and, and burdensome to try to keep up with, you know, maintaining this legalistic uh, posture of um, being good so I could go to heaven. You know, to me it was like, well, why do we talk about righteousness by faith when, you know, every time I'm turned around I'm being disciplined by people because of what I do. So, um, you couple that with the fact that I was quite involved at my school with leadership and other things, and a lot of the faculty and staff that I was involved with, and that sometimes were disciplinaries of me and my friends, were people that who I knew in their social life were doing, you know, some really god awful things and inviting us to do it with them, mm-hmm. 
And it became very uh, hypocritical and, and very disheartening. And at first, you know, it was kind of cool. Hey, you know, my, my faculty and I are doing this and that. But then, you know, if you stopped and thought about it, it was a bothersome thing. So um, in 1988, I had an incident with a couple of pastors that um, it just left me saying, okay, this is it, I'm done. And I decided to set God aside, but to cut myself off from the church. I was done. I didn't need it, and I figured it might be okay for people to live a double lifestyle and be comfortable with that, but it's just something I couldn't do. And so at, the point, at that point, it was just easier for me to say, um, you know, God, I know you exist and I believe in you, um, but you, if these are the people you choose to lead, don't choose me, and I don't need them. Wow. Wow. Amazing, amazing. So what is it that led you back to something that you were absolutely sure you wanted nothing ever to do with again? So, um, so if, you, if I'm not buying into the church, and, and this speaks for all of us, if we're not buying into what we're doing here, we're buying into something. And the something that I bought into was a lifestyle that is very contradictory to that of the church. You know, um, drinking and just many things that, uh, that weren't good. And I bought in hard and heavy. And um, this went on for a long time. Um, I still maintained myself as a person that had it together. I was always on the honor roll. Um, in whatever school I was in, I was always involved in leadership uh, at one level or another. I just wanted nothing to do with religion or the church because to me it was a money-making lie. Hmm. Um, so uh, in 1991, I was taking classes here of all places and um, I was sitting in a classroom, it was uh, July, and one of the classes I had at the time was an ethics class. And um, the class was talking about ethical issues and, and how to talk uh, uh, with patients about their care and about God, if that should come up, and uh, maintaining that relationship and maintaining an appropriate professional atmosphere and so on. And so the, the person that was teaching this class was a young man, and he, um, he seemed believable and I found myself after about six weeks wanting to go to this class on Tuesday afternoon uh, because we I had two classes the first one uh, my roommate Jerry Squire and I would make Desmerna Taylor's life horrible and uh, the second one was this this uh, ethics class that for some reason I wanted to hear what this guy had to say and so after about six weeks into the class um, I I was sitting there watching him and I told, something went through my head and I told God, I said, you know, if I could find somebody that was a pastor, and I, I thought this was a teacher, I didn't know he was a pastor. If I could find somebody that was a pastor that led a church like this guy because he seems believable and he seems like his heart is in what he's doing, I would come back to church, but mm. good luck. <laughs> and time went on and from there you know my story got really dark for a lot of years and about 12 years later um, by now I had a daughter and she was 
about five or six, and uh, it had been something that had been poking me that you know you probably should take your kid to church. And that went on for a couple years, and finally uh, one Saturday morning, I I told her I said, "Silly, uh, I call my daughter Silly. Uh, you need to uh, go upstairs and get your clothes on. We're going to church." So. She was kind of shocked and put herself together and went upstairs and got dressed and came back down. And um, at the time, Terry was sick and she stayed home. Uh, we came to church and we went up and sat in the balcony and it was, you know, reading the bulletin and church as usual. And they're up here doing uh, tithe and so on, the typical program. And I kind of thought, well, okay, not much has changed. And uh, all of a sudden, the, pastor got up to speak and I heard that voice I happened to be looking down reading and just instantly uh, I kind of I looked up and I looked at the stage and and there stood Randy and I kind of laughed because I told God I said okay you win because <laughs> because Randy was my teacher from 1991 and 1609 wow. mm. and I said, you know, not only did you find me a pastor, you found me the same one. Wow. And, uh, mm -hmm. and so I said, you know, you win, I'll come back. And uh, later that day, I went for a walk with my dog, and, and I told God, I said, you know, I, I'm not sure what you want with somebody that's as much of a mess as so. As I am right now, but uh, whatever it is, you're going to have to heal me, and whatever it is you need me to do, uh, you know, I'll get it done. Amen. Amen. And um, so I came back, and after about four years, they talked about getting involved, and my wife had told me for a long time, you know, you need to be involved. You like to teach. You could be speaking. You could be doing a lot of things to help. And I wanted to, but I, you know, was a little worried about it. Um, and then one day Randy said up here that uh, they were going to start a program where they wanted people to become involved. And um, so I, on the way out of church that day, I stopped by the table back there, and Joelle was there with a uh, iPad, and she took down some information from me, and we left and drove home and the interesting thing about that was is that by the time we left here and got to my house there was a message on my machine from Joelle to call her to come and talk to her and you know if anybody of you tried to call or text Joelle to get a response from her is pretty hard so that must hey, have been a god hey, thing hey, too yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I came in and we talked and um it just was time for God to tell me he needed me. Mm. And so, you know, since I've been here, uh, Randy and Joel and Doug and Roy, um, God has used these people to heal me and to teach me how to love you. Wow. Amen. Sounds like God really had a way of knowing just who you needed in your life to influence you, to bring you back to him. Wow, beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing so candidly and openly with all of us your, your journey and your story. We appreciate that. Thank you.
Thank you, Preacher. Thank you so much, Richard, for sharing your story. Wasn't that powerful? That powerful? See, we have no idea the influence that our lives can have. See, this is what the 12 people you love is all about. It's about these life-altering, life-changing connections, or something that I like to call love connections. How many of you have ever heard of a show called Love Connection before? Yeah. It was really popular back in the 80s and 90s. Uh, ran for 11 seasons, released 2,160 episodes, a lot of episodes, became one of the longest-lasting game shows of all time. And the premise was very simple. A contestant would come onto the show, they would pick a partner, go on a date, and hopefully make a love connection. And then they would come back and tell everybody about it, and people ate it up. Why? Because deep down inside, we all long to make a love connection. There is something within us that longs for this human connection. It could be with a significant other, or it could be with a family member, or with friends, but we need these human connections. You know, Harvard University, in a groundbreaking study entitled The Study of Adult Development, they tracked the lives of 268 men over the course of 80 years. Now it's 80 years. A lot of data. But when they asked the longtime director of this study, George Vaillant, they asked him what he had learned. His answer was remarkably concise. After reviewing decades' worth of data, he came to one simple conclusion, and it's this. He said, the only thing that really matters in life are your relationships to other people. Happiness equals love. Full stop. See, we all need, we all long to make love connections. There's something in us that longs to make these human connections with each other. Now, Christians, we believe that God designed us this way. He designed us to have this longing for connections with other people, designed us to want community. But even if you're not a Christian, I would venture to guess that you would agree that there is something within you that longs to connect with other people, to be with other people. And that's why some of the greatest advances of the 21st century center around this idea of community. The social media explosion can be attributed to community. Crowdsourcing technologies like Wikipedia, which relies not on a small group of experts, but on a large, engaged community, also taps into this idea of community. Even the Apple Store, it taps into our innate desire to connect. Have you ever walked into an Apple store before? It just feels different, right? I mean, now there are other stores that are trying to mimic their style, but way back in 2001, when the Apple store first opened, it just felt different. You'd walk in, and there was a completely different vibe to it. It felt open and welcoming and, and, and conducive to hanging out with its broad tables and its comfortable chairs. It felt more like a coffee shop than a retail store. And that vibe seems to have worked because according to Fast Company magazine, the Apple Store became one of the most successful retail concepts of all time. And how did they achieve their success? 
Here's the answer. Straight from Ron Johnson, who, is, who was the former VP of Apple retail stores. He's the one that actually came up with this concept. And he says, this is the reason why they're successful. People really love our stores because they are more than a store. Get this. We are a place to belong. In other words, Apple stores are successful not simply because of the products that they sell, but because of the connection they provide. See, we all long for this human connection. The great desire of the human heart is the desire to make a lasting, deep human connection. We long for it. And yet fewer and fewer of us are actually making these connections. As our society grows more and more individualistic, there is, there is a distancing, a dissolving of these human connections. We volunteer less. We invite people over to our home less often. We get married less. We're having fewer children, and we're having fewer and fewer friends with whom we can share the intimate details of our lives. And according to Emily Eshfani Smith of The Atlantic, the result of these dissolving human connections, of denying our social behavior, is social isolation has increased, our levels of happiness have gone down, while rates of suicide and depression have multiplied. See, we need these deep, lasting connections. And that's why the, that's why the 12 people you love is so powerful. See, the 12 people you love speaks to this longing within our hearts. See, it's not a program for converting people or, or a technique for convincing people. It's about caring for people. It's about speaking to this longing within us to love and be loved in return. So how do we do it? If the deep desire of the human heart is to connect with other people, then how do we make those connections? How do we make a love connection? Now, the good news is Jesus took this question very seriously. So seriously, in fact, that at the end of his life, on the night before he died, he took some significant time to make this answer clear to his disciples, to show them how they could build community and how they could create these long-lasting, life-altering relationships. And that's found in John chapter 15, starting with verse 5. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one from the seat pocket in front of you and turn to John chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 5. And Jesus is speaking here to describe how you make lasting human connections. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides or remains connected to me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. He says, I, I want you to imagine for a moment that I am the vine, and you are the branches. And then he launches into a metaphor that even if you're not really into horticulture, you could probably get. Like, how many of you enjoy gardening? Do we have any avid gardeners here? There's a few of you. How many of you despise gardening? Like, you... you you can't keep a single household plant alive. Like, your house is like a plant cemetery. It's a plant-free zone. Anybody here like that? Yeah, that's me. That's me. 
I mean, for the longest time, I didn't have a single live plant in my home because I just kill everything that comes into my house. Orchids, ivy, even a cactus. I don't know how you kill a cactus, but somehow I did that. I killed a cactus. So we, we, kept, we kept these live plants away from our home for a long time. We had fake plants. We had dried plants, but no live plants. Because I don't have a green thumb. I have a black thumb of death. But even black-thumbed eye knows that the only way for a branch to thrive is for it to be connected to its life source, the vine. A disconnected branch, it can look healthy for a while, but it won't bear fruit. It won't create new blossoms. It will survive for a little while, but it will not thrive. And what Jesus is talking about here is a life-giving connection a life-giving relationship, a relationship that helps us to flourish and grow, a relationship that protects us when we are fragile and strengthens us when we are weak, a relationship that, that celebrates our successes and it comforts our sorrows, a relationship that helps us to thrive and not merely survive. And now most people who read this passage, they, they think that this relationship is solely with God. But the reality is that while God is one of the relationships we need, he's not the only one. He's part of the answer, but he's not all of the answer. See, check, what, check out what he says next in verse 9. Jesus says, As the Father loved me, I also love you. Abide in my love. In other words, maintain this life-giving connection. And here's how to maintain this connection. Here's how you do it. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. He's saying the way that you remain connected to the source of life is that you keep his commandments. Now, we know from our previous sermon series that the commandments of God are far from a list of dry, arbitrary rules. They're so much more than that. And that's why Jesus says in the next verse, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. In other words, the result of keeping these commandments is joy. So rather than a dry list of arbitrary rules, they are stepping stones in a path to joy, to happiness, to fulfillment. And then Jesus summarizes what all of these commands are leading to. He summarizes in one commandment all the rest of the commandments that he's talking about. He says in verse 12, this is my commandment. <coughs> Singular. This is my commandment. And what he says next is life-changing. Now, some of you have probably read this commandment many times before. But if you take the time to actually listen, not just pass it over as a, some platitude that everybody talks about but nobody does, but you actually listen to what he's saying and do it, it can be life transforming. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another. Now notice he doesn't say that you love me, right? He says you love who? One another. One another. See, he's saying this is the way that you have this thriving, joy-filled life. You don't only love me. You love one another. 
Because we humans need these connections. God created us. He designed us for community. See, and it's not just a need that's psychological. It's also a physiological need that we have. According to Susan Pinker from The Village Effect, she says, a 2006 study of about 3,000 women with breast cancer found that those with a large network of friends were four times more likely to survive than women with sparser social connections. Four times. Our relationships give us life. Another study found that 50-year-old men, I'm not going to ask who's here, who here is 50 years old, but 50-year-old men with active friendships are less likely to have heart disease, which is the number one killer of men, than solitary men. So in light of this research, I'd like to suggest a new motto for the 12 people you love. Roy, I want, I want to hear what you think about this. The new motto is, find your 12 or die. <laughs> find your 12 or die. Because the reality is, the crazy thing about the 12 people we love is that we need them as much as they need us. We long for these connections. We long for these connections to one another. So Jesus says, so Jesus says, love one another because you need each other. Love one another. Develop these life-giving relationships with each other. And then this is important. He describes how we should love one another the manner in which we should love one another. He says, love one another as I have loved you. Not as your parents have loved you. Not as your children have loved you. Not even as your spouse has loved you. Don't love them with the same type of love they give to you. Love them as I have loved you. So how has Jesus loved us? He tells us in the next verse, greater love has no one than this than that he lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He laid down his life for us. He quite literally gave his life to these life-giving relationships. He, he poured himself into us. And he didn't stop there. He continues to give us strength when we are weak. He gives us hope when we're in despair. He continues to pour into us. And then he turns around and says to us, I want you to do the same. Love people with my kind of love. See, this is no Hollywood, do whatever feels good type of love. This is a give till it hurts type of love. This is a, a invest in people and help them to thrive no matter what, even if it kills me type of love. That's the kind of love that Jesus is talking about. And again, the reason why he challenges us to give this type of love is because he knows that's the only way to get this kind of love. See, that's how these life-giving relationships work. The only way to experience a life-changing relationship, a life-giving relationship, is by giving life. It's the only way. So God calls us to go out and pour ourselves into the people around us. See, you get as you give. You get as you give. And the more that you pour into other people, the more that you pour energy and life and hope and, and, and strength and, and time into people, the more you pour into others, the more you get back. And it's not ever equal because God also pours into those relationships. So you always get back more than you can possibly give. 
See, we need to devote ourselves to these life-giving relationships because that is what it means to love our 12. That's what it means to have life-giving relationships. We love as Jesus loved. And that's why the disciples, even after Jesus left, they devoted themselves to these life-giving relationships. Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 describes their commitment to community. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Notice they, don't just devote, they didn't just devote themselves to their relationship with God, to the apostles' teaching and to prayer, but they also devoted themselves to their relationships with each other, to fellowship and to the breaking of bread because they knew how important these life-giving, life-changing relationships were. And they didn't just do it once in a while. They didn't even do it just once a week. A few verses later, we are told that every day, every day, they continued to meet together. Every day they worshiped together. Every day they ate together. Every day they prayed together. No wonder they became close. See, this is so different than the way that we do relationships in the 21st century. In the 21st century, we try to microwave our relationships. You know, we give a little time here, send a little text there. We do a Facebook like here and an Instagram share there, and we think that we're friends. You know, I have 940 Facebook friends. <laughs> but I wonder how many of those are actually life-giving relationships. How many of those have I really, truly built community with? See, our problem is that we try to create a first-century relationship on a 21st century timeline. That's why John Ortberg writes, maybe the biggest single barrier to deep connectedness for most of us is simply the pace of our lives. How often do you hear or say things like, we've got to get together soon, or let's do lunch in a few weeks when things settle down? Have you ever said that before? I know I have. He continues, the requirement for true intimacy is chunks of unhurried time. You have to prioritize it. If you think you can fit deep community into the cracks of an overloaded schedule, think again. Wise people do not try to microwave friendship, parenting, or marriage. You can't do community in a hurry. See, we all long for we crave these deep relationships, and yet the only way to get them is by prioritizing them, by devoting deep chunks, big chunks of unhurried time to them, by pouring ourselves into them. That's the only way that we can have these kinds of life-giving, life-changing relationships. Now, in the next messages, we're going to expand on this idea of loving our twelve. But it starts here. It starts with prioritizing our relationships. It starts by putting that first beyond anything else, by pouring our lives into them. So right now, right where you're sitting, I want you to take a moment to think about one of your 12. Someone that God has put into your life to love. Not to convert, not to change, not to convince, but to care for someone that you may already care for, that you may already love. See, this doesn't have to be someone who doesn't know Christ. I mean, it can be. It can be a neighbor that you chat with or 
a coworker that you spend time with. But it doesn't have to be. It can be a family member, a spouse, a child, a sibling, a parent. It could be a close friend, someone that you can be completely honest with, someone who knows the true you. It could be, it could be a, a, a fellow, fellow attender of this church, someone who you sit next to during Sabbath school or, or that you are on the same ministry team with. It may even be the person who's sitting next to you right now. You don't have to look at them. But God says, take these, 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 one of these 12 and then think about how, and answer this question, what are some ways that I can love them? How can I devote chunks of unhurried time to them? How do I prioritize this relationship? So I want you to take a moment to think about that right now. How can you prioritize these relationships? And if, if you want, there's some room in the back of your program. You can jot some ideas down. Now, the booklet, The 12 People You Love, which is available if you don't have a copy in the, in the foyer for free, the 12 people you love, in the last four chapters, it describes how to do this, how to prioritize these relationships. So I want to share a few of these ideas with you while you're jotting your ideas down. One of the, the ideas is to take regular time to talk to your friends about your spiritual successes and struggles. You know, in college, I had a group of three guys that we would get together every week, and we'd do precisely this. We'd share our struggles and successes. We talk about our lives, support each other, hold each other accountable, pray for one another. I've gotten a little bit older, and I don't have quite as much time, so now I have a group of guys that I meet with once, once a month, and we do a similar thing. Just different ways of investing in these relationships that transform my life and hopefully transform them, theirs as well. Another idea is to spend regular time praying with your family. You know, my favorite time of the day is in the evenings before bed where I get to cuddle with my daughters and talk about our days and, and pray for each other. Just chunks of unhurried time that we devote to these relationships. Another idea is to connect with a church member outside of church. Maybe you go get boba, or you gather a group and go to trivia night, or, or you can grab your spouse and go on a double date with another couple. Just different ways we can prioritize these relationships. Because the truth is, we need these relationships as much as they need us. God has created us for relationship. He has created us for these life-giving communities. So I want you to imagine for a moment a community, living in a community that, was, that is full of life-giving relationships. A community where you are fully known and fully loved. A community where the deepest, darkest side of you is both understood and embraced. A community where you can flourish and you can grow. A community where, where your, your successes are celebrated and your sadness is comforted. A community where you can thrive and not just survive. See, what we want for you, for all of you, is to be a part of a community like that. And if you are a follower of Jesus, 
then he has challenged us to create that kind of community. But it's only possible if we prioritize our relationships, if we devote chunks of unhurried time to them. See, that is how we begin to love our 12. That is how we begin to grow life-giving relationships. And that is how we make a love connection.